0: Motivation and inspiration are powerful tools that change and influence perspectives, voices, and projects that shape the world. With all the negativity in the world, it can be hard to find those rare and beautiful stories that tell of inspired spiritual activism and individual healing journeys. Walk the path with me, Dr. Trish Rosher, on the show Heart, Change, Consciousness where we inspire listeners to take action towards a more just world. We'll hear from authors, change makers, influencers, activists, poets, filmmakers, and cultural workers who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Heart Change Consciousness allows us to understand the world from different perspectives and highlights what is possible. When we are fearless and open ourselves to our sole purpose and engage each other across boundaries. So let's self heal and open the path to self sovereignty. Heart change consciousness begins now. Oh my God, am I going to even be able to do this show
1: with Dr. Trish DeRosha? I mean, honestly. I know I were, I know I heard her record that opening. I know I worked with her. I know my team worked with her, but you hear her words. And by the way, that opening for the show, that's her. My absolutely colleague and host of Heart Change Consciousness. So that opening that you guys just heard, that was her. And it's one of those days for me where you're hanging on the words of people and As I listen to you, Trish, you know, and those words that were recorded, I don't know, months ago maybe, they come so to light in 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 the signs of where we are today. But more than just a dialogue, they are the heart. They are the heart of change. And for those of you who have not heard a show by Dr. Trish, if you have not heard of her work, if you've not seen the amazing things she writes, what she does, the articles she puts together, this is somebody, when I think about the amazing hosts we have and people that are bringing a message out, this is where we are in the world. So what does it mean to have inspired activism as a spiritual path? And, you know, I've gotten to think about you, uh, Dr. Trish, it, it, more than one time here recently. But beyond all of this, you're a certified yoga instructor. You're an inner alignment coach, um, Reiki practitioner, advocate, author, performer, professor. You and I have that in common. We could talk about that in another show. <laughs> you know, I'm about have that owner of Transformation Consciousness Coaching and Consulting. And you work across all these modalities to bring a very important message to the forefront. And, you know, you and I were talking about what we heard this morning and different words we heard. You are also someone that, you you know, you find expression as a white non-binary and you're out in the world and people can read all of this about you but it presents a conversation that the world needs to hear. Today, the conversation is waking up to whiteness, a healing perspective. And this is an article I believe you wrote. And so let's get down to this now. When we hear those words, right? Waking up to whiteness. I got a dose of what that meant early on in my bell-shaped head career in the first sensitivity training i did with the man that was so prominent in the field and i got a sense of that but let me ask you why whiteness why now
0: yeah um well and we're we're coming together right after the inauguration we're coming together a couple of weeks after the event at the capitol um and Yeah, a couple of days after Martin Luther King Day, right? So um, as I was thinking about just uh, what the topic was, right, for today, timing-wise, it just feels like whiteness is what we need to talk about. We're coming out of four years where so many people have been holding their breath. So many people have been fearing for their lives, fearing for the lives of those that they love, um, questions about citizenship, access to health care, um, you know, access to education, all of these things. Um, and when we talk about whiteness, whiteness is um, it's a blanket term uh, that in many ways is used to uh, describe those who were seen as human by the government right Um, in the world and whiteness is um, it's discursive which means that it's um, it's language that we use uh, to to explain um, you know this kind of conglomerate amalgamation of people from european descent Um, but it's also about many other things for me whiteness is a collective pain body Um, It's connected to trauma. It's connected to inherited trauma from white-bodied folks who are not processing, to use um, Medichem's words, um, resma Medichem and my grandmother's hands, their their inherited pain. And so it becomes dirty pain that's projected onto to quote-unquote others, right? So anyone deemed BIPOC, of color, Black, Indigenous folks, so right now i think we're having a moment of reckoning right um after obama was sworn into office there was all of this language about how we had moved into a post-racial state and racism didn't matter anymore and it didn't exist and everyone was equal and we just came out of four years of a precedent that really showed us that um the, the shadow of the nation right um and and how much white supremacy really is the legacy of this country and how deeply it has infiltrated the hearts of, um, you know, of people from European descent, but uh, how that hatred is actively um, placed upon BIPOC bodies every single day in very small and very big ways. Um, so so that's, that's why now. Um, I also, uh, I was kind of just saying, um, I didn't expect to be this moved by the inauguration. I was just kind of watching it and I was like, "I'll, I'll just be a dutiful citizen. And I had chills. I was like rooting, um, and you know, I've been thinking so much about Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. And so every Martin Luther King day, that's, that's something that I read. I feel like it's my responsibility as a white bodied person to really read his words and kind of sit with them. Um, and in that he talks so much about, uh, his frustration and disappointment with a white moderate. Right. Like if you have someone who straight out dislikes you, hates you and is open about it, he says it like that's that's much more um, you can kind of wrap your head around that but to then and and of course in this piece this was in uh 1963 that he wrote this um from the Birmingham demonstrations he's responding to the white church who wrote you know all of these preachers these white preachers were writing about like how he wanted too much and you know how he was just you know shaking stuff up and he wasn't really invited and so he is speaking to that and he talks about how um you know I'm just going to quote him because, of course, Yeah, please do, because this is
1: one of the most powerful pieces that is so relevant to the time we live in now. I mean, think about it, Trish. I mean, Dr. Trish, think about this. How could something back then be so relevant in the world
0: now? Yeah, yeah, like no time has passed. So he says in here, um, you know, I've been gravely disappointed with a white moderate The white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice and who prefers a negative peace, uh, which is the absence of tension, uh, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, right? Um, Who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. and so from there, he actually goes in and he talks about how some of the preachers deemed him an extremist, right, for taking direct action and for coming in and, you know, for, for demonstrating. Um, and he says, you know, though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them, which despitefully use you and persecute you. And he says, the question is not whether we'll be extremists, but what kind of extremists will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Um, so for me, when I read those words, I think about waking up to whiteness and taking accountability for whiteness. And, you know, as a white bodied person, the various ways that shows up in my life as being for the presence of justice and being an extremist for love. So I do think that whiteness is absolutely connected to uh, healing, whiteness is connected to walking a spiritual path.
1: It is so much so. And, you know, there are people that have come since. Um, I can think of a contemporary uh, Christian pastor, uh, and I can think of him because my mom loved his stuff, my stepmom, right? Now, when you talk about this, you know, this is a woman from the deep south, like a place that has no stove and no bathroom. Mm -hmm. That's where my two stepsisters grew up, right? That was my experience. But I think about some folks and how they've come out, Uh, John Osteen. Joel Osteen is his son, and it may not seem radical, may not like everything that he says or everything he does, but think about moving away from an entity and saying, we are non-denomination. I mean, what does that mean? But what it means is everybody's welcome, kind of. But here we live in a world where you and I watched this this morning. I don't know I didn't expect to do any crying. I didn't expect to, I don't know what I expected, to be honest with you. So I think I, I jumped in there, but let's talk about how, if you don't mind, can you talk about this, this beautiful piece by Martin Luther King Jr. Fast forward to where we are today. Fast forward to what we just saw in the demonstrations. And let's talk about this in the context of what we're calling whiteness. Because it's hard for people that are white-bodied to say, I'm a white person, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think we have to close the gap in a way. What do you think? What do you think about what is whiteness?
0: I think... um just to kind of, uh, to why this really matters today. This is a moment where, um, you know, we were spared some grace, <laughs> right? And um, part of my my fear, if I'm being really honest, is that sometimes when um, more quote unquote progressive, whatever language we wanna use, leaders come into office, uh, folks in the white community who are identified as progressive will kind of take a backseat and be like oh phew right everything's okay now and that's not true right it's not true at all this is a moment where we have a choice there's some possibility um and so hearing those words of kings and really calling right this um this call to action uh is really important at this moment, because I think we're at a different stage in racial healing. So I think that, um, you know, the civil rights movement was so important for getting laws on the books, um, for doing that kind of external action in the world. But where we are right now is starting to do some of that more nuanced, subtle healing, Um, And so we are being called to go inside of ourselves and to reflect on ways in which we uh, as white bodied folks have inherited um, this legacy of white supremacy and ways in which as a nation, right? White supremacy is the legacy, right? As we were hearing in the inauguration, uh, the enslaved built the White House, right? we are on stolen land in this nation, in this national project. And so we're in a moment where we can name, right, just the what is, what the past has been, where we are now, so we can really be honest with ourselves about where we want to go. So for me, waking up to whiteness is about coming out of historical amnesia. I understand whiteness to be, it's like a a fairy tale that's told to white-bodied folks. Ta-Nehisi Coates in Between the World and Me um, talks about how there's not, there are no white people. There are only people who believe themselves to be white. Um, And so if we understand whiteness as a cultural logic that allows white-bodied people to believe that there are um, inherent differences between us and them, whoever the them is, and whoever the us is. Because if we look historically, all of these different ethnic groups, you know, started out as other, and then were folded in to count as white. We can look at the census. The census is always changing. The racial categorizations are always changing. Um, but, you know, the root of, of whiteness really stems back to colonialism um, and, It wasn't just white-bodied folks, but were you land-owning? Were you of a certain class? And so whiteness also excluded poor white folks who didn't own land. It certainly excluded women, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so when we talk about whiteness, I really just want to highlight that um, it's an illusion. It's both very, very real and imaginary. And what I mean by that is it's made up. Right. Like race is a construct. Whiteness is like a cultural narrative or or a story that white body folks have been fed. Right. And and groomed within, uh, you know, from childhood. But if we're talking about spiritually, if we're talking about our soul and even our DNA and our bodies, we've inherited this stuff from. Uh, you know, the generations before us. And so even if we don't agree with it, even if we know it's wrong in our hearts, one, we're still benefiting from it. And two, we have to really dredge this stuff up from the depths of our being. So you can, um, you can be a, a progressive white identified person and think that racism is wrong and you can still be benefiting from white supremacy, you can still be enacting white supremacy, and your body can still harbor all of these mixed-up, you know, fear responses when coming into contact with BIPOC bodies. So, um, you know, this is the moment that that we're in. It is.
1: You know, I was really struck by you doing the show today, but it got me to really think, and it got me to think about myself and my family, and my reference to my stepmom. Um, I don't know how to describe my stepmom. When you look at your categorical, stereotypical, white, beautiful woman, that's my stepmom. The beautiful blonde, I mean, stunning, stunning. And she married my dad at a very young age. But what I've learned from her is so uncharacteristic of what we have in that stereotype. Um, What I learned from her and what she demonstrated it's more than words. And I think about this, and here's what I wanna say about it. And I'd like you to comment. I grew up in a project in the Bronx. I come from a European and recently just found out Brazilian heritage, but I come from basically that family. But we grew up as the lower, what do you, what did you call us? The, The lower level poverty, right? Whatever that is. But our neighborhood I didn't know I was I honestly didn't know about my whiteness being white till two events in my life. One was going to Plainfield High School, where the ratio of people of color to the ratio of people that are white was something like 70 of color, 30 white. And so my friends, because of the way I grew up, my friends, my basketball players, They were all girls of color. I got my first dose of this by going to my locker one day and seeing what was on my locker. And I didn't understand it. And I'm not any different than you. There are privileges with being me, and I get it. But I didn't understand the hate. See, that's what's crushing to me even today. I I don't think I understand the hate. Mm -hmm. And if we can't take a spiritual path to this, we cannot dissolve this. Mm -hmm. What's your take on this? Because, you know, I know we're all just one, but my table tennis coach was from Ghana, Africa. We couldn't even go out to dinner together. And I didn't really think about these things till later in life. So do you think I'm just a slow learner?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think, there, I think there's lots of systems in place that actually, you know, reward white-bodied people to not ask the questions. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of... Um, ways in which our, our bodies at a very basic level work hard to uh, protect white-bodied people from waking up to the trauma and the shame, right? Because the, honestly, there is. So um, I I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Um, it's interesting to me looking back, my, my heritage on both sides is um, British and Irish. So talk about colonialism, right? We didn't talk about it, right? I was never asked to explore that relationship or that conflict, right? That was like literally in my body. Um, you know, we, we were often taught to just kind of identify as Irish. Um, most of us have very Irish names. Uh, you know, n- many have uh, Gaelic names, um, but my family is also very Republican. Right. And so I would kind of be taught that, you know, the Irish weren't seen as white when we got here. But then, you know, we kind of raised ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, you know, therefore everyone else should, too. So that was kind of how I was taught to look at it. It wasn't until years later, having a conversation with my grandfather, I was like, you know, the only reason that we spoke English when we came was because we were colonized by the British. Right and you know that was a really uncomfortable conversation he didn't really want to go there with me um so i think the truth is that in this white supremacist culture this white supremacist national project we can say that everybody is hurting but everybody is hurting for different reasons um and some people have a very close proximity to physical material power right or institutional power um and many people do not uh i would say that whiteness itself is a trap for white-bodied folks um that there's the illusion that that somehow we're privileged Right. But in order to kind of maintain that privilege, you have to not ask any questions. And the trade off is that you're cut off from your humanity. You're cut off from your soul. You're cut off from your heart. And and so for me, um, you know, coming to consciousness with my whiteness, men, a lot of reading, uh, particularly feminists of color, particularly black and Chicana feminists, uh, and reading things that triggered me deep in my body where I felt very implicated. I wanted to go to defensiveness, I felt nauseous, I wanted to run away, I felt shame. Um, Yeah, I'm particularly thinking about uh, the book This Bridge Called My Back, um, and then also Gloria Anzaldúa's uh, uh, Borderlands, um, La Frontera. So those two books, it's been really interesting going and reading them now after I've processed some of this trauma out of my body, these old vibrations, because I'm able to read them, like not read them through the filter of my wound, but just read them, right, for the truth that they're presenting. Um, So I, I think that that everybody loses in a white supremacist culture. Um, And there is a lot of hate and that hate is intergenerational. And there's a lot of reasons that that hate has um, accumulated and shown up in different ways, right? By different groups, from different groups. Um, But I think that taking an intersectional perspective which is um, again, coming out of black feminist thought. so. Uh, legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, the Kambahee River Collective um, are are talking about how as humans, right, like we have all of these multiple pieces of our identity. And so, you know, we, we have our gender, we have our race, we have our class, we have our kind of religious upbringing, if we have that, our educational background, um ability geopolitical privilege right all of these things and we're just kind of like at the intersection of all of these and so when we start to think in this more nuanced way about it we can recognize that no one's like just privileged or just oppressed we're kind of this mishmash so i think sometimes um when we talk about whiteness you know poor white folks will feel like well but I've felt hatred towards me and I don't have a lot of money. I'm oppressed too, right? Well, sure, right? Maybe you don't have access to class privilege, but there's something different about being able to walk down the street as a white-bodied person in a conservative white space and not fear for your safety, right? So sometimes I think we create these false equations, but I think that absolutely white folks are rewarded and encouraged to not ask these questions.
1: And you know, what you're talking about is so real if you've experienced it. And yet as a white person, I know that even though I might experience and I have, with some of my friends of color. I know I have experience with them. I get to go back to my whiteness. And what I mean by that is, even if they're chasing me and Sam down the street with rocks and we somehow get away from that, even if that's it, right? Because somebody saw me touch my table tennis coach on the arm, seriously, yes, this is it. We get away from that, but Sam has to, he's Sam he's from Ghana Africa where he's revered and his mom's revered and he goes through his day every day like that I get to go back to being white and nobody throws anything at me for being white unless I say something I shouldn't when we come back from break uh, Dr. Trish Rosha joining me here today this is her show it's a fabulous show we're going to talk about aren't we all just one And we're going to talk about what that means. Can't we just move on? Come on, let's just heal. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that. And if there was ever a divide that I see right now, it is the divide around this. And when you are part of an experience and you know what it's like to be in the shoes for even a minute of what I just described, whatever your color is, anger for sure comes to the forefront and honestly it is something that is indescribable as I wanted to face this gang of people chasing us and I don't know what I was going to do and Sam just grabbed me by the neck and saved my life let's take a short break we'll be right back
0: message delivery by Lisa Ann you can't make this stuff up Tune in every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Message Delivery is an inspirational show about the journey to enlightenment and spirituality. For more information or your own personal message delivery, visit messages 2 That's Angel Messages, the number two, the letter U.com. Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. For more information about Stacy and her services, visit StacyBarber.com. That's Stacy S-T-A-C-I-E, Barber.com.
1: Raising the vibrations through stimulating conversations while exploring the mysteries of Atlantis and Lemuria on Tales from the World Radio with me, Amira Beth. Join us every second and fourth Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Be ready to feel empowered and an active part of the changing earth. For more
0: information about me, visit Amirabeth.com. hey
1: everybody welcome back and you're listening to heart change consciousness with dr trish Derocha. i'm dr pat this show is about inspired activism as a spiritual path today it's about waking up to whiteness a healing perspective um dr trish before we go on how can people find out about you how can they listen to some of the other shows you've done how can they read what you're writing about all of the above
0: Yeah, um, so my practice is called Transformative Consciousness Coaching and Consulting. You can find my work at transformativeconsciousness.com. Um, up there, I have, you know, former podcasts, I have a piece that's actually called Waking Up to Whiteness, um, that's specifically for white-bodied healing practitioners, and how we can think about this as an energetic issue um, that really requires us going deep into our own bodies in order to um, effectively show up for healing work, um, but especially for BIPOC clients. Um, my book, tra- uh, Transnational Testimonials, The Politics of Collective Knowledge, Knowledge, knowledge production. That's also up on on my website. Um, And I offer somatic coaching. So we we work through fear responses in the body. Uh, I work with biofield tuning. We uh, work with tuning forks to uh, vibrationally bring the body back into equilibrium. Um, And all of my services are really focused on individual healing, self-healing for the purpose of collective social change. So again, you can find my work at transformativeconsciousness.com.
1: So I wanna say something. Um, I have been part of, let me just call it, part of the spiritual activism movement for decades since very first open public summits, conferences were held. I mean, some of the most incredible people. I don't ever remember anyone taking the conversation to the level you're taking it to. And I consider that an evolution in this movement. Um, I consider it an evolution of getting to the place where we're really dealing with what needs to be healed. Now that doesn't diminish the people that I've been on stage with, the people that I've interviewed, it doesn't. But what it says is like anything, even as us, as a network, you've got to evolve, you've got to change. And so then here we go with this question. Now, I think the meaning of, well, you know, we're all just one. (laughs) All just one, everybody. You come on here, we're all just one. If I had a dollar for everybody that talked about us all being one Mm -hmm. without realizing what the definition of the one was, I'd probably be in a yacht somewhere. But even my own evolution, really talks to the point where we must redefine and include we must redefine and include so aren't we all just one so are we making the problem worse um can i throw something in i know this is not scripted or anything but i got to throw this in i was listening to a guy on tv the other day and he was he's a long time uh democrat i'm just going to call him that i don't know what else to call him maybe he's independent but he said something interesting, and he was almost at foaming at the mouth. And he said, "If, if, blah blah blah, pardons, blah blah blah, I'm going to leave the party." And I thought to myself, "Okay, that is not a healing moment. I know that's an angry moment. But that doesn't mean we're all just one. See, that's the antithesis to me, the antithesis to me of we are all just one." So how do we get there? How do we get there? Where are we with truly being like in what I call the one zone?
0: Yeah, so I think if we're thinking, just even taking social theory into account, when um, people from different backgrounds kind of come into contact with each other, one of the first things that people will try to do is find something in common. Right. And so if we're thinking about racial consciousness, um, you know, minimizing differences is something that happens out of fear of, um, you know, just not knowing what to do with difference, right? Like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I feel uncomfortable in my body. So I'm just going to pretend that I don't see it. So for me, when um, I hear particularly in white healing circles, this, the phrase love and light, um, or, you know, we're we're all just one or or calls to unity, which, um, you know, Biden spoke about a little today. And I was like, <laughs> I wonder what King would say about that. Cause he taught, he actually takes up, you know, the, the language of, of unity and how that's often used to like dismiss or, or ask people to, um, not use direct action and call for change. Um, so, you know, I think we're in a moment where the pendulum kind of like swung, everything was, you know, uh, just about like wanting to come together, but what happens when you're trying to get somewhere without doing the work, right? Ugh. Ugh. Right? Like Ugh. what resists persists, right? Or, or you know, um, that whatever's repressed has to actually come out. So, you know, while we sure, you know, love and light feels great, but we also have to be super real about where we are and we're not there yet. And we're never going to be in this like fictitious place where. Um, One, we can pretend that the past hasn't happened and these past systemic wrongs haven't happened. So even thinking about the inauguration speech today, Joe Biden used the language uh, of white supremacy, like he actually used the phrase white supremacy, uh systemic racial injustice and racial injustice in a presidential speech now i know that those are just words but still to be able like to have them spoken is a certain kind of reckoning right and a certain account of um a a form of accountability from a white-bodied person saying you know i'm a white-bodied person and i am speaking that this is a reality i can see that these things are happening um Mm -hmm you know, in healing work, we like to say that uh, the only way out is through, right? And you have to feel it to heal it. And I really think that this is a moment for that work that, um, you know, white body people, if we don't get our stuff together, we're going to continue to project our pain. And again, this is intergenerational trauma. So this is both like from uh the the racist framework of this country but it's also whatever trauma our ancestors were experiencing before they arrived um this is something i just want to hold up his book but my grandmother's hands Rezma resmaa um it's racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies talks a lot about um and he actually in here there are certain chapters that are specifically um for Black folks, folks of color, for police officers, but also specific chapters for white-bodied folks and dealing with this ancestral trauma. Um, But until we kind of decide that we trust ourselves to work through whatever feelings are coming up, whatever discomfort's coming up, it's going to just be passed on to future generations. And, you know, spiritually, you know, the spirit realm doesn't know anything about linear time. When we do this work in our bodies, we are helping to heal those who have come before us and those who will come after us. And we're doing that both individually for our lineage, but also collectively as each one of us decides that, that we're gonna do the hard work of looking into our hearts, looking into all of those places that scare us, You know, mostly white folks are afraid that we're going to look in and discover that we're bad, that we're bad people, right? You know, this is where mindfulness is really helpful. If we're practicing mindfulness and we realize that at any moment, thoughts can come up that are not ours, that are cultural programming, that are coming from ancestors, and we can guide ourselves to stay with whatever's arising in our bodies, just acknowledging it, witnessing it, taking responsibility and accountability for it and sending compassion to ourselves, right? Like that's, that's huge, you know? So for me, I was brought up my, my immediate family kind of raised me in a colorblind mentality, right? That like race doesn't exist. I I legit walked around feeling like a bad person because I noticed race. And so for me, it wasn't until college where I was talking to one of my black friends who was like, no, that's just real, (laughs) right? Like, that's just real. And I was like, oh, it doesn't make me bad. And so I had to kind of do that internal work with myself of like, what are those stories that I've internalized? Um, and what is the lineage that's been passed down to me? Um, But I just want to say every time we say, you know, as white bodied folks like love and light or we're all just one or this is going to make it worse. One, it's it's kind of delusional, right? Like that we can't just erase the past and go to some utopic future that, you know, doesn't exist and and start over. That's just not what's happening. But two, it is gaslighting. Right, it's saying, um, you know, to the very real experiences of BIPOC folks that that the the reality of the situation doesn't exist. And so, if we look individually, right, or study like, you know, what kind of form abuse takes or how people respond, if you continue to be gaslit, right, like you have your experience. And people are looking at you and telling you, no, you didn't really experience that. No, you didn't really feel that. I'm not going to apologize for something my ancestors did. I mean, think about the deep anger that's going to come out of you. And honestly, we need anger to transform things. That's, that's how that's it happens, right? That's it. No. And-
1: That's it, isn't it? I mean, now let's talk about that for a minute, because I know you're going to continue to talk about this, but let's talk about what I called a tipping point, a really important, oh, and and I will say positive, positive occurrence of the past four years. What does it take for you as an individual, me as an individual, but as a collective, to shine the light on what needs to change. What does that take? And I think you, me, Biden, Harris, none of any of those folks could have shined the light on what opportunity we have now to heal and what opportunity we have to come to the table, right? I mean, you didn't see it coming, but it came. And here it is. What do you think about that? What band aid do you think got ripped off? And do you see it as a moment for us to truly come together, at least just to chit chat? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I I think that um, we can understand Trump's election as uh, a backlash against Obama being elected and it kind of it it ripped the band-aid off of you know like this fictitious like racism is somehow in the past or you know equality was achieved with the civil rights movement to really see the deep deep repressed anger and hatred in white-bodied folks like just looking at images of of the capital and what was going on and you know from a healing perspective I've been trying on which is not comfortable to try on but like what are they feeling in their bodies right what are they trying to repress and to project out that's it, it's coming out sideways like you know, if we think about the amount of inequity that's going on, you know, just looking at that, like all of this systemic inequity, that doesn't happen. People who love themselves don't allow this kind of inequity to exist, right? Um, So I think that this is a moment where, you know, the past four years have been forcing us to reckon with the collective shadow self of like, Everything that has not been dealt with. Um, and you know, Resma Manakam in My Grandmother's Hands talks about vicarious trauma. And so if you if you are um, a white bodied person who has seen or, you know, whether it's it's physical pain projected onto the bodies of BIPOC folks or you have uh, witnessed the the emotional pain, there is a piece of you that has to shut down, right? And actually like compartmentalize that pain. And that's, that's a cross, like any kind of healing. Yeah. When we don't deal with that, it deals with us. And so I think that we can see what's happening as all of these repressed pain bodies that are popping up. And so I think the opportunity is that now we- we have a clearer sense of what it is we're dealing with. But now the question is, what do we do with that, right? Yeah. And what is the path forward?
1: I think you call it reckoning, reckoning with whiteness. And I think that part of that is to really look at this in ways we haven't done before. I think any one of us that have been in a state where we've either been denied loan for one reason or another, couldn't move forward on our dream, couldn't, couldn't get out of being homeless, whatever the scenario is, what, fill in the, your own blank. You know, I got angry because I did not or was not able to dot, 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 dot. And for a white bodied person, my dot, dot, dots are significantly less than a lot of other people. They really are. But you remember those, right? Mm-hmm. You remember those. And we're looking at a time now where accountability has got to become prominent. Talk about that as a pathway to heal.
0: You know, I think when we talk about racism, white-bodied folks often think like, oh, you know, that's like an issue for people of color to kind of deal with and work through, but it's not, right? It's a white issue, right? It's a projection of hatred um and i think that there's often outsourcing um onto bipoc bodies right like please help me understand this issue right or asking you know um folks to take on emotional labor or to somehow lead the way and obviously that's coming from a lot of fear um and you know, this This is coming from people who want to change, right? Like there's there's violence that happened and then there's the violences that happen as, as we're trying to make our way forward and heal. But, you know, there's all these facets of white supremacist culture and I think one of them is perfectionism, right? I, expecting ourselves and those around us to be perfect. And I think that healing is really messy, um, but I think that it takes... Uh, it, it starts with a willingness and a deep desire to heal and a willingness to take accountability for how we're showing up in, moment, in each moment. Um, so, you know, I always think about what are my actions in the world and how is that connected to my lineage? And whatever harm my lineage has done, how can I take accountability for all of that? I think sometimes... Um, white folks feel like, like, well, you know, hate goes both ways, right? Well, I don't really care about that. If I'm in my heart and I'm in love, I'm going to be thinking, what can I do? How can I go first? What's the step in that I can take to get us out of this collective mm-hmm. mess, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to so, just say something. We got a question yeah. from one of our listeners. Yeah. I want to just
1: tell them what it means. BIPOC. B-I-P-O-C, that's what we're saying. What Mm -hmm. it stands for is an acronym for Black Indigenous People of Color. I think I got that right. Thank you, yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. I just want to, yes, that is, you're absolutely right. Thank you for texting me that question. I was trying to get it over here. That is what it means. So now you understand the, the breadth and the depth of what Dr. Trish is talking about. Sorry to interrupt you there.
0: No, thank you. Thank you for doing that, always. I would always... Uh, like people to ask questions, right? Because, and again, this is language that we're using right now, Um, and, and language changes, and it's really important to ask the questions. I think that's actually a perfect example of making ourselves vulnerable and realizing that we don't know all of the answers, and being able to ask to be uncomfortable, to take ourselves out of our comfort zone, to look up books, right? To have conversations, to inhabit spaces we haven't inhabited before. Um, And I think you know, a, a meaningful way of stepping forward is getting very clear on what is our ancestral lineage? What were our paradigms for understanding ourselves as white-bodied people growing up? Were we encouraged to have these conversations? Uh, you know, like, like you were saying, when did we come to consciousness about whiteness? Have we come to consciousness about whiteness? Do we shut down? Do we get defensive in our bodies when we, you know, and, and go into fear? Do we kind of run away and go into flight? Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different forms that it can take, just freezing, feeling really scared. Um, You know, courage isn't about the absence of fear. It's about being with that fear and continuing anyway. Um, And and I just like to say that whatever fear white body folks have about walking through this process of healing has like nothing on the amount of fear that black indigenous people of color folks are experiencing every single day, just walking down the street, trying to live their lives peacefully.
1: And that is it. You know, we're living in a world where things get said to us. They get said to us. And uh, I want to, I want to just, just mention this and then I want to make sure people know how to find out more about you. Mm -hmm. I was at a tournament. Table tennis, of course, recently. <laughs> well, let's say a year ago before COVID. And we're just playing. My doubles partner, my women's partner, and of course we're winning. And someone turned to me and said, where did you grow up? I said, I grew up in New York. They said, oh, that explains it. I said, explains what? You, did you know you're the only player here, you're the only white player here that has picked a Latino for a male partner and an East Indian for a woman partner? And I thought, I looked at him and said, damn, are you stalking me? Because I don't know what to say. But this is the place we've got to get to, where we're not looking at my partner, Dipti, amazing, Mario, amazing, as a Latino player, and, but people are looking. Thank you for today. There are much more to come from Dr. Trish Therocha. What are your final thoughts? And again, how can people connect with you?
0: Yeah, I, I just wanna reiterate that we're in this moment where a lot is falling away. And again, destruction is always loud and healing is very quiet. We live in a multiracial democracy, right? In the US, that is where we are. So I think um, one one of the reverends actually asked this in the inauguration today, right? If this is the country, how do we learn to live in it together? How do we learn how to love in it together? And I really think that for white bodied folks, this means starting with ourselves, understanding how the seeds of inequity are in our hearts, are in our bodies, are in our minds, understanding, getting curious about our lineage, like what what is our lineage, right? Stepping out of this kind of, you know, pan-European whiteness model and understanding, you know, where did my ancestry come from? What did they experience? What did they bring with them here? What have they experienced here, right? Like the deeper we can understand ourselves, right? And where we come from, the more we can step out of this myth um, and really ask, what is it that we want for our earth family and how can we contribute? So again, my um, business is called Transformative Consciousness Coaching and Consulting. um, And you can find me at transformativeconsciousness.com.
1: Dr. Trish Terosha, thank you so much for today. Last question. Give us a few personal thoughts. You've been through watching the inauguration. I uh, cannot cry without listening to Lady Gaga again,
0: but what are your final thoughts here today? Uh, Listening to Amanda Gorman's "Home." she's 22 years old. It was fire, (laughs) right? Like. Um, I, had, I had chills, like my crown chakra was all tingling and just thinking like, okay, this is a voice of the future in our present. Um, I, I had so many chills watching and uh, I never thought that I would sing wholeheartedly with Garth Brooks to Amazing Grace, but I did. <laughs> I'm telling you, made me stand up.
1: Dr. Trish Derosha I'm Dr. Pat if you want to find more about me go to the Dr. Pat show Uh, as a matter of fact Dr. Trish is going to be stepping out you've got a lot more coming from her engaging, insightful and transformative we're going to take a short break we'll be right back with the show thank you for
0: tuning in to Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com with me Dr. Trish Derosha Make sure to come back next time so we can continue to awaken your soul purpose. Look forward to more conversations with your favorite authors, changemakers, influencers, activists, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. For more information about me and Transformative Consciousness Coaching, visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. This was Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com.